Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Those of you who uh, woke up an hour early, congrats. And on spring break. Well done. Uh, well done to you. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 13. Romans 14, starting in verse 13, as we continue our line-by-line study through the book of Romans. What we've been talking about here in Romans 14 is a fancy theology term that we gave you, and that term is adiaphora, all right? We've been talking about issues that are known as adiaphora issues. The singular is adiaphoron, and these are issues that are, are morally neutral. They're matters of conscience. They're not things that the Bible commands, but they're also not things that the Bible forbids. This would include everything from driving a car to drinking alcohol to getting plastic surgery to eating a cardboard box, okay? These are things that the Bible doesn't command you to do, but it also doesn't forbid you from doing those things. And so we've been dealing with what do we do in the church when we differ over issues that are amoral, not that they're immoral, that they are morally neutral. They're just matters of conscience, things like eating meat or owning a gun or dancing or whatever it might be. And we've been talking about this throughout Romans 14, and Paul's short answer to this is simply this, that if you are a Christian and the Bible does not forbid it, you have a right to do it. However, there are times you lay down that right for the sake of your brother, and you should not be fighting one another. We can disagree, but we should not be judging one another on these issues, and we should not be causing division uh, over these issues. Those whose consciences are not bothered by these things, Paul calls the strong. You'll see him use that language a lot throughout uh, chapter 14. And those who have a sensitive conscience on these issues, Paul calls the weak. And we talked about how shocking that is. Growing up for me, I thought the strong Christians were the ones that stayed away from stuff. The strong Christians were the ones that didn't uh, drink or dance or play cards or whatever, but the Bible is going to spin that on its head. And it's actually going to say, no, no, no. If you have to have all these crutches and you have to have all these braces in your Christian life, in addition to the gospel, these man-made rules, then your, your conscience has not caught up to your theology. And so that's what Paul is addressing uh, all throughout chapter 14. Well, <clears throat> before we get into our text today, I want to start with a little, uh, little illustration. So I Googled this last week, things that parents tell their children that are not true, okay? And I've created a small list of some of these things that maybe you heard growing up, I know that I did, that when you eventually become older, you learn are not true. So here's the first one, ready? that if you cross your eyes, what will happen? They'll get stuck that way, okay? If you cross your eyes, that your eyes will get stuck that way and you'll look like that way forever. It turns out that that is not true. I read a medical article from an ophthalmologist who said you might hurt your eyes if you do it too long, just it'll strain them and make them sore, but they are not going to get stuck that way. The reason your parents told you that is so you would stop bugging your sibling, right? When you're making that face in the back of the car and you weren't touching them, but they said they were, they were, you were bugging them, Your parents say, if you cross your eyes, they're going to get stuck that way, okay? Here's another one, that if you touch a toad, you will get warts, okay? Turns out that that is also not true. Kids get warts more than adults. Their immune systems aren't as strong, but you typically don't get that from touching a toad. But even today, even though I know that, because I grew up believing one thing, I will not touch a toad. My son will be like, look, daddy, a frog. And I'm like, don't touch it. You'll get warts. Look, a lizard. Don't touch the lizard either. You'll probably get warts. Look, a stray dog. Do not touch the stray dog. You'll get like leprosy. It'll be the worst. Don't touch any animals. Don't don't touch any animals ever, okay? It's not true, but listen to this. When you grow up hearing something and you believe it for many years, it's very hard to undo. It's very hard to get your heart to catch up to your mind. It's hard to get your emotions to catch up with your theology, okay? Here's another one. That after you eat, you have to wait 30 minutes before you swim or else you will cramp up, okay? That is actually not true. 
Now, you can, be a little, uh, you can be a little short on breath if you're full because you've taken away some of your lung capacity, but you typically are not going to cramp up and drown, which is what I heard, right? Zach, don't even go in the shallow end in three feet of water because you will cramp up and you will just drown, okay? And so today, when I eat, I wait at least 30 minutes before swimming, even though I know it's not true, because I heard that growing up, okay? We all have things like this. Now, if you're dehydrated, yes, you'll cramp up, but just eating will not do that in and of itself. And then this one, you've probably heard this one, that you should never wake a sleepwalker. You ever heard that? You'll give them a heart attack. It's dangerous. Let me tell you what's dangerous, to not wake a sleepwalker. They could fall down the stairs, they could wander into traffic, whatever it is. And so if someone is sleepwalking, you are supposed to wake them up gently. You don't hide behind the couch and like, wake up! You don't do it like that. You wake them up gently and you lovingly escort them wherever they need to be, okay? Now, if you've tried to wake them up repeatedly and they don't wake up, that is a zombie, okay? At that point, you switch tactics and you just fight for your life at that point. You fight for your life, don't let it bite you. We all know how that goes, but that's, uh, that's the deal with waking a sleepwalker. Now, here's the deal. In all these things, <clears throat> I now know what the truth is, but when you hear something when you're little and you believe it for many, many years, it's really hard to shake. It's really hard to get your feelings to line up with facts. So the Apostle Paul is dealing with that same issue when it comes to these adiaphora issues, the, the drinking or dancing or playing cards or whatever it might be, okay? So imagine for a second that you're a Jew in the first century. And you grew up your entire life hearing, you cannot work on Saturday. You have to take the Sabbath off. You shut it down Friday night. You're off Saturday, period, okay? You've heard your entire life you can't trim the edges of your beard, that you can't wear clothing made of two different kinds of fabrics, that uh, you can't eat meat that's not kosher. You cannot eat pork. You've heard all these commands your entire life, and then you, re you become a Christian, and you learn that Christ has fulfilled the Mosaic law on your behalf, and you can do those things your conscience will take a while to catch up to your theology. Your heart will take a while to catch up to your head. And so the Apostle Paul is dealing with a church in Rome that is made of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and when they come together around the table, there's a little bit of conflict, right? The Gentile Christians want some bacon, and the Jewish Christians are like, I know it's not sin, but it still feels like sin to me because that's how I grew up. And so the Apostle Paul is dealing with these issues and what they should think about one another. Now, one more qualifier before we actually get into the text. As we've been talking in Romans 14 about these issues that are matters of conscience, that you can pursue or not pursue, if you're a child, please listen to me. If you're under your parents' authority, if you're under your parents' roof and you are not married, please hear what I'm about to say. These rules do not apply to you. If you're a kid, you don't get to pick what is a matter of Christian freedom. If you're a kid, you have to obey your parents, okay? Your parents get to restrict what movies you watch. Your parents get to restrict what TV shows you watch. Your parents get to restrict the music you listen to. Your parents get to tell you to come home at a certain time, whatever it may be. So what we're dealing with in Romans 14 is only for adult believers. It's only for those who uh, are making their own decisions. But if you're a child, you still have to submit to your parents' authority, okay? So there should never be a time where I hear that you are rebelling against your parents because Pastor Zach said you could, okay? I'm okay with your parents telling you to submit to them because Pastor Zach said that, they, that you should, okay? But you can't use this against your parents. This is only once you're out on your own. Your parents get to restrict your liberties while you are a kid. If I hear otherwise, I'll personally come to your house and ground you, okay? Uh, so, okay. Let's pray, and then we'll get into verse 13. <clears throat> Almighty God, we confess that you are great, that you are almighty, that you are Trinitarian, that you have always been Trinitarian, that you have created everything for your glory, and we have failed to glorify you. And so, Father, we thank you for sending the Son to die on our behalf. 
We thank you for sending the Spirit to indwell us and to convict us of sin and righteousness and to call us to yourself. And so would you protect us from the enemy, from his wiles and from his lies, and uh, we just ask for guidance as we work through this text. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Let's look at verse, uh, how verse 13 starts out. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Now, let me clarify this. There are times where the Bible commands us to judge one another, and there are certain kinds of judging the Bible commands us not to do. So let me be clear. There's this weird cultural idea that Christians are never to tell people that they're doing something that's wrong, okay? That you should not judge means don't ever tell me that I'm sinning. That is not what that means. We are commanded in the Bible to judge one another. How are you going to tell somebody to repent and believe in Jesus unless you make the judgment that they don't know him? Okay? How are you going to tell somebody that they shouldn't cheat on their wife unless you know that adultery is sinful and you're willing to say that? So the Bible does not forbid us from telling people that something is wrong and something is right. In fact, Jeff mentioned this last week in the, uh, the sermon. 1 Corinthians 5 explicitly tells us to judge those in the church. When someone says, hey, don't judge me, what they're saying is I'm not a Christian. Okay? We are to call sin, sin. We are to call righteousness, righteousness. We are to call people to repentance, and we are to point out when people are in sin. That is a right kind of judgment. The Bible allows us to do that. It's always weird when people say, well, Jesus said not to judge, and then he turns right around and judges the Pharisees and judges the Sadducees and judges those who are in sin, okay? The Bible does not forbid us judging. The Bible forbids two kinds of judging. The first one, which is the one that Jesus actually forbids in Matthew 7, is hypocritical judging where you're judging other people in this spirit of self-righteousness when you're doing the same thing. You have to take the log out of your eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's the idea there. If you are the one who is cheating on your wife, you're probably not the one to rebuke somebody for speeding. What the Bible is forbidding is hypocritical judging, and the Bible forbids another kind of judging here in this text, and it's where we judge each other when it comes to adiaphora issues. When it comes to issues that are not sin, but we then try to read our conscience onto everybody else. There's a big difference between saying, I personally don't want to eat meat, and nobody should eat meat. Or I personally want to listen to this, don't want to listen to this type of music, and therefore nobody can listen to that type of music. And so that's the kind of judging that the Bible is forbidding here, okay? Now look at the next command, the second half of verse 13. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Okay, I want to make a quick textual note here. In Greek, this phrase, past judgment, and this phrase, decide, are actually the same word in Greek. There's a little play on words going on that the Apostle Paul is using here. He's saying, decide not to pass judgment, but rather decide not to cause one another to stumble. So I want to mention that quick textual note to you. But here's my question for you, because this is the command in verse 13, to not put a stumbling block or a hindrance in front of a brother. Let me ask you this question. What does that mean? What is a stumbling block? Is it just where someone's offended? Is it where it causes them to sin because they have some proclivity to sin? Is it where they violate their conscience? It's kind of this term that can be used in a bunch of different ways. I remember when I was uh, going to college in Dallas, I was visiting a buddy of mine up in Denton near the uh, University of North Texas, and we were eating at an IHOP because we're poor college kids. And I look out the IHOP window, and there's a little strip center. And in that strip center, there is a, a tanning salon. I don't know if that's what they're called. I've never been a tanning studio, a place where you get tan, okay? And I look at the name of the tanning salon, and it, this is the name of the tanning salon. Ready? Tans you. That's it. T-A-N-S space Y-O-U. Okay? Tans you. And so for the next 20 minutes, we could not figure out what the heck that means. 
we tans you? Our tanning beds will tans you? We have no idea. What does tans you mean? Why isn't it called get tan? Why isn't it called tan you without an S? No idea. No idea, okay? We could not figure it out. Same way a lot of times when we as Christians approach this idea of a stumbling block, we make it mean all these other things. So let me be clear what this phrase means and doesn't mean, okay? To not be a stumbling block to another Christian does not mean that they are not offended or that they are not annoyed by you. That's not what a stumbling block is. A stumbling block is where you cause somebody else to violate their conscience and actually sin. Okay? That's how it's used all the time in the Bible, that the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews, that it's better to tie a millstone around your neck than to cause one of these uh, kids to uh, stumble. So a stumbling block is not, I could be at a restaurant eating meat, and somebody who's a vegetarian could come in, and they could be offended that I'm eating meat. That's not a stumbling block. A stumbling block is where you actually cause somebody to violate their conscience and actually commit sin. Okay? We'll talk more about that uh, a little bit later. Also notice the context here, never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. This is talking about our relationship with Christians. You'll hear people say, well, Zach, there are certain freedoms you shouldn't partake in because a lost person might see you partaking in that Christian freedom, and it will hurt your witness. You're not going to hurt your witness if you're not sinning, okay? It's by partaking in actual sins that it hurts your witness when a lost person sees you, not when you're not doing something that's sinful and somebody who's lost in 2019 sees you do that. That is not going to cause them some major existential crisis, okay? So notice the context here is talking about with fellow Christians, not just we're out at a restaurant or something like this, but rather when we're gathered with other Christians who have a sensitive conscience, okay? Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Look at the first part of verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Here at the Church of Rome, you have the strong those who can practice certain Christian freedoms, and you have the weak, those whose conscience is violated by those certain freedoms, what side does the Apostle Paul take? Which one, huh? Strong or weak? Shout it out. I hear a whisper. Strong. He takes the side of the strong. Now, that's fascinating. Paul's going to say that some of you are okay with certain things, others of you are not. You should both love each other, but he is going to take the side of the strong, and he's going to say eating meat, drinking wine, whatever it is, is not what makes you unclean, that nothing like that is going to make you unclean in itself, okay? Now, let's look at this phrase here when he says that nothing is unclean in itself. It's important to understand the context here. There are certain things that are unclean in and of themselves, okay? You committing adultery is unclean, and it doesn't matter what your conscience says. It doesn't matter whether you love the person or you think it's okay. It is unclean in and of itself, Okay? Blasphemy is unclean in and of itself, okay? Uh, stealing or assaulting a child or whatever it is, there's a lot of things that are just sin, okay? The Bible's not saying nothing is unclean. It's saying within the context of what we're talking about, he's talking about ritual purity, okay? Nothing is unclean in and of itself when it comes to ritual purity. Meat or wine or whatever it is is not unclean in and of itself, but the context there is ritual purity. There are sins that are unclean. He just means when it comes to ah, diaphora issues, these matters of conscience, that those things are not unclean. Now, look at that phrase again, that nothing is unclean in itself. I want to give us a little paradigm shift. There is a tendency for us as Christians to view some things as religious, some things as sacred, and for us to view other things as secular, 
okay? It's, uh, there's actually a term that's used in evangelicalism called the secular sacred divide. And here's what, here's what we have a tendency to do. We have a tendency to view some things in our life as sacred and devoted to God, and we have a tendency to view these other things as just secular things. By the way, nobody uses the word secular other than Christians. They don't call it secular music or whatever. It's just music. That's just kind of a weird Christianese word that we use. So we have a tendency. So, for example, if we're uh, reading our Bible, do we think of that as sacred or secular? Sacred, right? We think of it as sacred. But if we're going to our job, you know, in the insurance company, we think, oh, that's secular. Coming to church, that's sacred. Mowing our lawn is secular. Listening to Christian music, that's sacred, but listening to jazz music is secular. And so what we do is we bifurcate and we divide out our entire life into some of these things that are religious and some of these things that are secular, okay? I want to completely destroy that paradigm and destroy that worldview. I want to give you a different way to view the world. I want you to ask, whenever you're partaking in something, I want you to ask, is this sin or does it belong to Christ? Those are the two categories. If it's sin, stay away from it. You cannot partake in sin. Sin is not an adiaphora issue. It's actually evil, okay? But if it's not sin, there is a way that you can redeem it and use it for Christ, okay? If jazz music is done well, that's done to the glory of God. It's not secular. It belongs to Christ, okay? We have a tendency to divide the world up into sacred and secular. Instead, I'd rather you divide it up into sin and things that can be done to the glory of God. You should be able to answer your emails to the glory of God, to go to your job as a banker to the glory of God, to mow your lawn to the glory of God, to eat a delicious steak to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The devil does not own anything that is good or anything that is true. Amen? Okay? Let me give you a little example about this. You can have a Christmas tree in your house at Christmas time. Okay? I don't know if you know this or not, before Christmas was celebrated on December 25th, there was a pagan festival called Saturnalia where they used trees, okay? Now, you can't participate in Saturnalia. You can't worship pagan deities. But can you take a tree and redeem it and use it for the glory of God? Yes. Do you know why? Because the devil doesn't own trees. Jesus owns the trees. Yes? Nothing good or nothing true belongs to the devil. How do I know that? 1 Corinthians is talking about idol meat in 1 Corinthians 8. And it will say there's this meat that's been used in worship of demons. And the question is, can Christians eat it? And Paul's answer is yes, because there is no demon meat. There's just Jesus meat. You can't go to the temple and worship demons. That's idolatrous. But the meat belongs to Jesus. The tree belongs to Jesus. The music belongs to Jesus. Nothing good and nothing true belongs to the devil. This is something the early church dealt with when it came to philosophy. So there was a big debate in the early church over whether or not Christians could study pagan philosophy because the best philosophers in world history are Plato and Aristotle, two pagans, okay? And they are brilliant, and they say some bad stuff. Aristotle thinks that the universe is eternal. Aristotle thinks that women are deformed men, that a woman's trying to turn into a man, and when she gets stunted along the process, she becomes a woman. That's Aristotle. That's wrong. Plato believes that the highest form of love is male homosexual love. He writes that in the symposium. So they have some things that are bad and should be rejected, okay? But they also say a lot of really good things. Plato's concept of a just republic in the, Repub Rep the Republic or Aristotle's ethics in uh, Nicomachean ethics or logic, all these kind of things come from these guys. And so the question is, can Christians use it? And thankfully, you have guys like St. Augustine that says, yes. Do you know why? because all truth is God's truth. If Plato says something that's true, it doesn't belong to Plato, it belongs to Christ, okay? Plato just got lucky. 
He stumbled upon it, but it doesn't belong to him. It belongs to Christ. Augustine says it's like uh, the story of plundering the Egyptians. So you guys remember the story in the Old Testament where Israel is being led out of Egypt by Moses? Everybody know this story? A little detail of that story we have a tendency to skip over is right before they leave, they go over and they ask their, their, their Egyptian neighbors to borrow some of their stuff. That way when they leave, they steal all their stuff. They plunder the Egyptians. So you go next door and you're like, hey, Sandra. I don't know if Sandra's an Egyptian name, but hey, Sandra. Let me borrow your nose rings and your earrings and your necklaces and your nice clothes because I've got a party to go to tonight. And she's like, sure, Jewish neighbor. And then the next day you are out of there. Okay? Why? Because those things don't belong to the pagans. They belong to the people of God. Okay? So we have a tendency to think that if something is in the world, meaning in culture, it's bad. That's not true. It's bad if it's sin. But if it's not sin, there's a way to redeem it and use it for the glory of God. Okay? But it continues. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now, the Bible's going to say something very profound here. It's going to say your conscience does matter when assessing morality. Romans 14, 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, meaning this meat, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Okay, now let me give you this. There's two types of sin. There are things that are wrong in and of themselves, okay? These are things that are wrong, period. Doesn't matter what your conscience says. Doesn't matter whether you like it or don't like it. It is sin, right? Adultery or blasphemy or greed or pride or whatever it is. Things the Bible calls sin, they're sin in and of themselves. Doesn't matter your conscience. But there are other things that are not sinful in and of themselves, but you should not do it if it violates your conscience, that it could be sin to you. Give you an example. Is working out a sin? No, you should work out. You should take care of your body and be a good steward. Now, what if the reason that you're working out is so you can cheat on your spouse because you'll look better and you'll have more options? That's a problem. The working out's not the problem. It's the heart with which it's done. Owning a gun, assuming you're not a felon, assuming you're in a country that allows it, is not sinful. You can own a gun if you want to. That's not sinful. But let's say the reason that you own a gun is because you're planning on robbing a bank. Well, now you realize that the issue has nothing to do with owning a gun. It has to do with your wicked heart, okay? And what the Bible is going to say is that there's another thing that makes an action sinful, and it's when you do it against your conscience. It's when you sin and violate your conscience, okay? Someone had sent in a a really helpful email uh, over the week about whether or not uh, they were referencing the movie Chariots of Fire and uh, whether or not a man could run on a Sunday if he thought that it was sin to run on a Sunday, And the answer is it would be sin for him because it violates his conscience. He's doing it without faith. It violates his conscience. It's not sin in and of itself. You can run all you want on Sunday. But before you do so, you need to reshape your conscience in light of the Word of God so that you're not violating your conscience. So some things are sin, just to recap, in and of themselves. Other things are sin for you if you do it with a bad conscience. You're supposed to be doing everything for the glory of God. So if you, as that Jew in the first century, when you're eating that pork, you think that you're sinning, you're not doing that to the glory of God. How is God pleased with that? As you're forcing yourself to eat bacon, wondering whether you are or not pleasing God. So the text is going to warn us against violating our conscience. Something righteous can be sin for you if done with a bad conscience, but the reverse does not work, okay? You cannot pursue something that's sinful with a good conscience and think that everything is okay, okay? So this, uh, this command goes one direction. Now, I want to say this. You should not violate your conscience on these issues, If you are uncomfortable with drinking, you should not drink. If you're uncomfortable listening to certain kinds of music, don't listen to that. If you're uncomfortable 
uh, working on Saturday or Sunday, the Sabbath, whatever it is, you don't, please don't do that. Please don't violate your conscience. Please hear me on this. You can reshape your conscience with the Word of God. Nobody lies to you more than you, and nobody lies to you more than your emotions. Your emotions are not bad, but they're often false. We have to reshape how we think, reshape our consciences in light of the Word of God. I'll give you an example. I used to believe, growing up, that it was a sin to work on Sunday. I mean, I was hardcore Sabbatarian. I thought it was a sin to work on a Sunday. I would not work on a Sunday. I, would, I thought it was wrong to mow the lawn on Sunday. I'd see somebody going for a jog on a Sunday, and I'm like, he's just jogging straight to hell, right? You can't jog on a Sunday. You're supposed to keep a Sabbath, right? I had a friend ask me, can you help me move? And I said, I can't help you move. It's the Sabbath. So I didn't even think you could do good things on the Sabbath. I went further than the Pharisees, okay? And then when I started studying in school, started studying theology, I came across these passages I had never noticed. Passages we read like last week that one man considers one day as holy, another considers every day alike, and each should be fully convinced in their own mind. Or places in Colossians where it says not to let people judge you in regards to new moons and Sabbath days. And I started realizing that this command to keep the Sabbath has been abrogated, that Christ has fulfilled that. That is not a command New Testament believers have to keep today. Yes, rest to be wise. Yes, come to church. But you're not sinning if you work eight days in a row. And guess what? Today, I work every Sunday, okay? So obviously over time, something has changed in my thinking because my conscience has been reshaped in light of the Word of God. Just to do a little social experiment with this, I did this this week. This is not just me making stuff up as a pastor. I practiced crossing my eyes this week to convince myself they wouldn't get stuck. I knew that. I knew they wouldn't get stuck, but I hadn't really tried it. I had heard of grace, but I hadn't practiced it. And so I sat there, not like at work, like someone's coming in for marriage counseling and I'm sitting there cross-eyed, not like that, but on my couch, I'm practicing crossing my eyes and I think they're going to get stuck and I think, no, no, they're not going to get stuck. Keep doing it. They're going to get stuck. They're not going to get stuck. Keep doing it. And what I'm doing is I'm reshaping my conscience in light of truth. I learned they won't get stuck if you cross them. Now do I believe that? You'll hear that certain things are not sin biblically, that you grew up thinking were sin. And here's the question. What are you doing to reshape your conscience? Are you thinking through these things? Are you chatting with other Christians about these things? Let me give you one of my favorite quotes from uh, my boy Martin Luther, the uh, spearhead of the Protestant Reformation. Listen to this quote, okay? Whenever the devil harasses you, seek the company of men or drink more, or joke and talk nonsense, or do some other merry thing. Sometimes we must drink more, sport, recreate ourselves to spite the devil, so that we leave him no place for troubling our consciences with trifles. We are conquered if we try too conscientiously not to sin at all. So when the devil says to you, do not drink, answer him, I will drink and write freely just because you tell me not to. Isn't that great? Okay, now let me be clear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I don't care whether you do or don't drink. I don't care. Okay, if you're uncomfortable with it, please don't do that. The, the only reason we're even talking about drinking is because that's kind of the 21st century, century equivalent to eating meat. If you were to ask Paul, Paul, why do you keep talking about eating meat? Because that's their issue. A great example of an odd offer issue that Christians fight each other in the American South in Baptist and Methodist churches are, is over the issue of drinking. That's the only reason we're using that as an example. Here is what Luther is saying, okay? What the enemy will do is he will take these issues that are adiaphora, that are not sin, and he will use them, if your, your conscience hasn't caught up to your theology, he will use those to condemn you. He will use those to enslave you. He will use those to trap you. He will use those to make you feel awful and like you're not really loved by God. And here's what Luther is saying. Don't just pray for grace 
actually start walking in it. Don't try to make not sinning your Savior. Make Jesus your Savior, okay? Don't just pray that God would take away your legalism. Start taking baby steps of grace. Start practicing crossing your eyes. One of the great ways to fight against the enemy's works is to do what Luther said. Get with friends and laugh and play a game and have a drink and realize it's about Christ and it's not about how well you do or don't do. That's what he's saying. So don't violate your conscience, but know that you can shape your conscience over time with the Word of God. Verses 15 through 16. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Let's start with verse 15 and explain what's going on here. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. You have, as a Christian, certain freedoms that you are going to be sometimes called to lay down for a time for the sake of other Christians, for the sake of not hurting and harming your brother. It's not that you have to give it up forever. It's not that one Christian's offended by eating meat so you can never eat meat. One Christian's offended by drinking so you can never drink. But there are times, the context here is immediately within these first century home gatherings where they're eating food together in each other's homes as members of the church, where you will have to lay down a right that you have temporarily for the sake of your brother. That's what this text is saying. Now, here's something I want to explain. Look at this particular word in verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, okay? Because this gets inter- misinterpreted a lot. I've heard this uh, from a lot of different pastors, and they completely misinterpret what this text is saying. This text is not saying that you cannot participate in a Christian freedom if some Christian might walk in and be offended or annoyed that you're partaking in that Christian freedom. That's how I've heard people teach this. That if you're in a restaurant having a drink and a Christian comes in there and they are grieved, which just means they're annoyed with you because they disagree, you somehow sin. That is not what grieved means in this context. I'll show you what it means. It's much stronger than that. What grieved means in this context is where you cause a fellow Christian to they themselves partake in that area of Christian freedom, to violate their conscience and thus fall into sin. That's what grieved means here. Okay, let me prove it to you from a few different places. Number one, grieved is linked to verse 13 above where it talks about a stumbling block and a hindrance. Stumbling block, hindrance, and grieved all mean the same thing in this passage, okay? Look at the end of verse 15. I think this is a stronger case. Do not destroy the one from whom or for whom Christ died. Okay? Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. If you're at a restaurant and you're eating meat and a Christian comes in who's a vegetarian, you are not destroying them because they simply disagree with you. Okay? The idea of destroying them is this. In the first century, you would gather together to eat meals as Christians. Let's say I'm a Gentile Christian and you're a Jewish Christian. And I sit down, and I just start shoveling away the bacon. I start shoveling away the pork because I'm a Gentile Christian, and I know that nothing's unclean in and of itself. I can eat this kind of meat. But you're a Jewish Christian. You grew up hearing that this is bad, and you're not comfortable with it. And so we start to make fun of you and say, you're weak in your faith. You need to eat more bacon. And so because you want to fit in, you start eating that bacon. But as you do it, you feel like you're violating your conscience. How does that destroy you? Because if you sin against your conscience over and over and over again, eventually you start to think that God hates you, and eventually you start to pull away from the church. You start to pull away from where salvation is found. And in the first century, you can't just go to another church. You just fall back into lostness. That's the idea of what this text is talking about. That if you are partaking, if you're with Christians, and you're partaking of some area of Christian freedom, and they are uncomfortable with it, and they feel like they have to partake in it, but when they do it, it hurts them. It violates their conscience, and it causes this rift in the church. 
that's the way your brother is destroyed. The word destroyed here in Greek is the same word that's used for eternal judgment. It's saying this will cause them great spiritual harm. So just to summarize all of that, this text is not saying if any Christian could be offended by what you're doing, you can't do it. This text is saying that if you're partaking in this Christian freedom will cause somebody else to do that, but they shouldn't be doing it, it will cause great spiritual harm to them. Okay? Yes. Okay. So let me give you another example, and then I'll give a clarifier on that. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 through 12. This is an excellent parallel passage for what we're studying today. It deals with this meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Listen to what it says here. However, not all possess this knowledge. That's knowledge that you can eat or drink or whatever. That's not a part of your spiritual life. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being, what's the word? Weak. Same kind of language with strong and weak here that he's used in uh, Romans. Being weak is defiled. Food will not commit us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the who? Notice also the word stumbling block. What does a stumbling block mean in 1 Corinthians? The same thing it means in Romans, where you actually cause them to sin, not just where they don't like it. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, the strong, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is, what's the word? Destroyed. There it is again. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So let me give a clarifier. If I am going to dinner and I'm going to be with somebody who is offended by me eating meat, I will not eat meat for that meal, even if they're just offended by it. That's not the main point of this text, but I think that's a true principle. If I'm going out to eat a meal and I'm going to be with a Christian and that Christian is offended by drinking alcohol, I'm not going to have a drink, okay? Not that I won't have a drink ever. I'm not going to have a drink there with them, okay? Because I love them. But that's not the main thing this text is talking about. This text is warning against partaking in something with somebody, then they think they have to partake in it, and when they do it, it causes spiritual harm to them. It's a much stronger thing that it's talking about here in this text, okay? Now, time to hit the strong a little bit. A few weeks ago, we said, hey, if you're weak, you need to grow. When we uh, talk about weak being someone whose conscience is, uh, has not caught up to their theology, now let me say something if you're the strong. You're someone in here who loves Christ, and your conscience is not bothered by these non-moral issues, okay? Let me say something to you. Your freedoms are not the most important thing. It's not about you. It's not about your freedoms. It's about Christ, and then it's about others. You love God first. The second command is to love others. Then you can come after that, okay? But it goes God first, and then others second. If you cannot lay down your right to partake in something for a meal, for an hour, maybe for a season, you're not as strong of a Christian as you think that you are. You will be called, though you have certain Christians, for certain times to lay that down. Not always. Paul's not saying because a Christian's offended by meat, I won't eat meat ever. Because someone's offended by drinking wine, I'll just never partake in communion. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is during that time when you're around them, if you cannot lay down your right for a meal, for a season, for whatever it is, because you love people more than you love yourself, that's what the Apostle Paul is critiquing. If Christ has accepted this person, you don't get to disdain them. If your spouse is an alcoholic, you might not get to drink for a while because you love your spouse. If you're ministering to your neighbor who's a Muslim that thinks that eating pork is wrong, you probably should order something other than pork. There are things that you have a right to that you should lay down for the sake of that meeting, for the sake of that short season, for the sake of that meal, because you love Christ and you love others more than you just love your freedoms and yourself. 
Verse 16, I won't spend a lot of time here because it's pretty uh, uh, obvious what it means. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. The thing is good in and of itself, but when it becomes a weapon that's hurting other people, that's a problem. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, here's why I love that. That text is just so obvious, but we have a tendency a lot of times not to see it. We have a tendency not to see it. The first church that I was ever at up near Paris, Texas, we had a kid who was in the youth who ran his truck into the church, okay? Not like hit a curb, not like hit a pillar, backed his truck through the sanctuary, okay? Why we were at that that church? His name was Chad Karsner, and we made a bunch of different jokes. We used to call him, Chad, hit me with your Karsner. And uh, we said that his truck got saved, which is why I was trying to drive it through the baptistry, and we had all these jokes. Right after it happened, though, we went up and we said, hey, man, did you not see this huge church building, right? There's nothing around here. We were in the country. It's like field, 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 huge church building. Did you not see this? He's like, yeah, I just didn't see it. Like, were you using your eyes? What do you mean you didn't see it? It's the only thing here. It's the only structure for miles. Yeah, I just, I just didn't see it, right? It was so clear, but to him it was not obvious. Here's what this text is saying, which is so clear that we have a tendency to move over. Ready? Christianity is about Jesus. Christianity is about whether you love and trust Jesus. It's about whether or not you're forgiven in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's not about all these little ticky-tacky extra rules that we fight about and divide over. That's not the point. The kingdom of God is not a matter of these little freedoms or not freedoms or any of those things. The kingdom of God is bigger. It's about joy and love and the power of the Spirit and the unity that we have with one another. It is a bigger message. And this passage is a rebuke against the strong first, and the weak second, okay? This text is saying that if you say, well, I'm not going to lay down my rights. I'm not going to lay down my freedom. These other people should just have better theology. Yes, I agree with you, but you do have to lay down your rights. You know why? Because Christianity is not primarily about your rights. Christianity is not primarily about your eating and drinking. It's about Christ. It's about the power of the gospel as evidenced by the Holy Spirit, things like this, okay? But this text also serves as a slight rebuke to the weak Christian, For the one that thinks that, okay, actually me drinking or not drinking does affect my spiritual walk. Me eating meat or not eating meat does affect my spiritual walk. This text is going to offer a slight rebuke to you as well. Your relationship should be founded on Christ, not Christ plus how well you're doing with putting food in your body or not in your body, okay? 1 Timothy 4.4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Mark 7, 18 through 23, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding, this is Jesus talking about what's clean, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from without, I'm sorry, for from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile the person. Let me say this stronger. The problem is not outside of you. The problem is inside of you. The problem is not some morally neutral thing outside of you. It's within you. This is the era of, the error of uh, prohibition, Okay or even with some of the gun debate. I've actually met people that are pro-alcohol and anti-gun, and then I meet other people that are pro-gun and anti-alcohol. They don't realize they're arguing about the same thing. Is the problem a morally neutral liquid outside of you, or is the problem in the human heart? 
Is the problem a morally neutral piece of metal outside of you, or is the problem within the human heart? The problem is us. The problem is not outside of us. The problem is in us. It is sin. That's the issue that this text is going to deal with, okay? That's the issue. The defilement doesn't come from eating meat or drinking wine or whatever. It comes from a heart that is born God-hating and has to be redeemed by Christ. Verses 18 through 19. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding, okay? This text is going to say, ultimately, regardless of where you fall, whether you're more weak or more strong, you're okay with these things or you're not okay with these things, you should be seeking to build up the church. So here's my encouragement to you. I say this, I've said this a few sermons, I'm going to say it again. Don't get mad, get coffee. Get with people that you disagree with and study the Bible. If you're one of the strong Christians, don't despise the weak. Sit down with them and study the Bible. If you're one of these weak persons, don't, one of these weak people, don't despise the strong or judge the strong. Sit down with them and chat about these things. Wrestle with the Scripture and let the Scripture rebuke both of you. Let the Scripture change the way you think and change the way that you act and these kind of things. Let our lives be reshaped by the Word of God as we seek to build each other up. Okay, now, where does this text have the gospel in it? Okay, I don't want you guys coming to a service and we just say, Here's some weird stuff on Adiaphora. Have a great week. I want to end by talking about the gospel, okay? And I want to do, the, do so out of this passage that's related, Philippians 2, 4 through 8. Listen to what it says about Christ. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, whether you're weak or strong, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, by the way, that means he's God. Form of God is not something that's like God. It means he is God. In a second, he's going to say that he took on the form of humanity, which doesn't mean he's like humanity. He also became human, okay? Who, though he was in the form of God, notice that direct reference to calling Jesus God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. That doesn't mean Jesus emptied himself of his deity. He's always been God. He didn't get rid of his godness. He didn't get rid of any of his power or any of his attributes. He's always been God. What it means is that he laid down his privilege. He didn't have to step off the throne and save humanity, but he does. And he emptied himself by taking, on, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's what this text is going to say, that Jesus was willing to take the shame and the despising and to be spat on and to take the sin of mankind for people who hated him. Can you not for one hour lay down a freedom for the sake of your brother? Christianity is not primarily about this list of do's and don'ts. Yes, there are do's and don'ts in Christianity. Christianity is the fact that we have a God who loves us so much that this God is willing to become human while remaining God and to do all the stuff for us, that He is willing to take our shame, that He is willing to live the life that we should have lived, that He keeps the laws because we can't keep the laws, that He goes to uh, a cross because we deserve to die, that He's resurrected and He is Lord of all. That's the point. And so there's a gospel all over this text, which is this. Jesus gave up so much, though he didn't have to. Can you not sometimes, for a season, for an evening, for an hour, for a meal, give up something for the sake of your brother? Let's pray as uh, those helping serve communion come forward with the elements. Almighty God, we thank you for Christ and just ask that uh, you would help us see how great you are. We thank you for sending the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to live within us, by whom we are able to cry out, Abba, Father, that we are adopted into a, uh, a new family. 
I ask that you would uh, protect everyone here. I just know that for whatever reason in dealing with this text, there's just a lot of different places where things can be misunderstood, where someone will feel as though they are maybe have too sensitive a conscience, or maybe they don't, and they'll start judging others, or maybe the strong will just keep practicing what they're doing, and they don't care what people think, or maybe someone will think that they can use what I've said to run into sin, or maybe somebody will take the idea that we have freedoms in Christ and use that as a way to practice licentiousness, though that's not what the text is talking about. So I just confess that there's so many errors we can fall into. Don't let us fall into the error of legalism. Don't let us fall into the error of licentiousness. Don't let us never give up our rights for others, but don't make us feel like we, uh, uh, our consciences are, are provoked by things they shouldn't be. We just confess that we need help. Would you be with us? Would you protect the unity of this little church? In Christ's name, amen.